The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for October 14th, 2021. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young, joining you as always from Austin, Texas, USA. Uh, I'm not going to lie. There is a bit of a lull in our, in our political calendar. You know, there's just, uh, Democrats are kind of just, fighting with each other in slow motion. All the crises got kicked down the the road for another month or so. So not a lot going on. I mean, I guess the biggest news is that uh, uh, we've seen some rebound in Joe Biden's approval numbers. So uh, maybe a a sign that uh, without an active crisis, Biden is a bit buoyant. And so really, they just want to avoid that. Also, uh, it would make sense if the the idea is so goes the COVID numbers, so goes Biden's approval. We are rebounding out of Delta. And so maybe the old dog doesn't look so bad. But aside from that, there ain't really a ton to talk about. So I figured we would get a little bit more cosmic. And there's only one guy that I like to talk about when we want to go Big picture. And that is Kevin Ryan. He is a a rad fan favorite. I know y'all guys uh, really, really like him. So we uh, we're going to have that. He's going to be with us for the entire hour. So uh, we will go ahead and and begin there. Kevin Ryan, welcome back to the program. Good to be here, man. So uh, uh, this is a lull week. You know, Congress is is half in, half out. The Democrats uh, delayed everything so they can negotiate against each other. Uh, <laughs> uh, Biden is is currently, it seems, briefly between controversies and and uh, a total uh, meltdown. So. So I feel like we've we've got a great moment here on a Friday when this is going to air where we can really just kind of luxuriate in the meta and nobody uh, do I think uh, I have a, a more fun talking about the cosmic than I do with Kevin Ryan. Uh, oh. One of the things that I've seen you've uh, been active uh, uh, talking about or at least following is the controversy around Dave Chappelle. Uh what uh, he, in, in his own words, what many would consider to be the goat, the greatest of all time in terms of stand-up comedy. I certainly think he has earned a a spot, you know, in that Mount Rushmore next to Pryor and Carlin and uh, whoever else that you would like to put put up there. Maybe Lenny Bruce, but uh, uh, yeah, g- give me give me your thoughts. Give me your give me your top line thoughts on on the controversy around. The, the Chappelle special. So I think as usual, what, what happens and especially with Chappelle is that uh, people do, either they don't watch it or they just see the parts that they want to see. And Chappelle's like, and you know, I don't want to have no spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen the special. I think everybody should watch it. I think it's was like, uh, I think it's just incredible. I mean, like I was in tears at multiple points. And different types of tears. Like, yeah. it's uh, just astounding. I mean, like, uh, if you only watch it from the perspective of, of Chappelle as a storyteller, it's incredible. Uh, but he specifically addresses the the controversy. You know, he, he's like, he says, like, look, I want to be very clear about things. Like, the problem is that, like, people haven't been listening to what i'm saying like if you if the reactions that i'm receiving 
or make that clear. If you listen to what I've been saying, then uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't have this outrage. You wouldn't have this problem. I think it's I think it's ridiculous. I, so I, I mean, so so then is let's let's take the backlash at its most. You know, let 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 let's steel man it and and say, okay, no, people did see it. People yeah. have watched it. People know uh, uh, exactly that whether or not his point is more nuanced than the bumper sticker kind of controversy that we've gotten, which if you have not followed it, uh, Dave Chappelle from the very beginning of his Netflix specials, which is a grand reemergence. You know, he, he goes into this cocoon past uh, the leaving Chappelle show on Comedy Central nearly 10 years in the valley where he's doing random stand up dates uh, and then emerges with this gigantic mega contract from Netflix to do six specials. This is the last of those six. And in almost every single one of them, he has touched as he often does on hot button issues. Mm -hmm. Previously, the hot button issues were almost exclusively about white people and Jews. Uh, uh, And then of course, you know, his own African-American community. Yeah. Reemerging ten years later with uh, obviously a reshuffled deck. In in the meantime, he has a fascination with the LGBT community, uh, and uh, uh, specifically as it continues to to go on for each one of these specials, the trans community and and the trans community. It seems like is the one that has uh, uh, been the most hurt by the things that he has said about them. This is the special for which he says, number one, it's his last on Netflix. So who knows whether or not, I mean, I, I presume it's also money time for Chappelle. So he's saying, oh, yeah. this is my last one. So now everybody else, if you want to go ahead and get in the Chappelle game, now start negotiating. But also he does seem genuinely hurt by the fact that he is being viewed as not just somebody who is, saying hurtful things, but somebody who is saying violent things, who is, who is encouraging a degradation of humanity to trans viewers and listeners. Uh, What I find very interesting about the special is that there, he seems to be desperately wanting to have a dialogue uh, in in a Chappelle kind of way, which is never going to be, you know, uh, uh, coming out and pleading like he is always going to either take the piss out of the situation or be strident on on something. But we've kind of gotten the exact opposite. Uh, and and so every every line that you can take and say, oh, he says this like I'm team turf or, uh, uh, you know, any any kind of uh, uh, slander that he uses in the special is, is now the headline, but I don't know. I, I, I found elements of, of the special to be kind of his most pleading work. Yeah. Like, and, and that's odd for Chappelle because he very Very rarely is, is pleading. Yeah. I would, I would classify Chappelle as a sort of uh, Socrates figure. Okay. He's a, a social gadfly. He's a, he, and this is, this is a great point that you bring up because he's usually an antagonist in like what everybody is supposed to agree on is that like, look, it, this is free range antagonism. There's nobody is spared. We can all laugh. We can, we can enjoy a sense of community, which is like, com- which is almost completely lacking in these times. And we can come to these agreements together through laughter. Uh, and I think one distinction that's very important, and I think this is what he was like, really, kind of, he was extending his hand um, in this special, is that uh, he's not attacking uh, the transgender community. And he, he really made that distinction very clear. Uh, and I think... The, the only way he could have made it more clear is that like the, the problem he has is with, you know, activists and it doesn't matter if they're a transgender or not. I, I think most of the time it's like a, a class, an activist class that, you know, co-ops the transgender movement in order to further their own causes 
which turn out to be fairly dubious or disruptive or like a kind of social, uh, a, a kind of like anarchist, they have kind of an anarchist bent to them that really is not productive. Um, and Chappelle uh, exposes that. I, but I just like most important, I think he did a great job of, um, of being very clear about it and trying to like, you know, squash the controversy, but also retaining the, the Chappelle magic of like uh, just approaching it head on. I mean, like his whole thing is like, he just pushes the feels around. And I think in the first special, he pushed the, he had a few, the, a few of the transgender jokes and was like, Oh, that's very sensitive. Yeah. That is a very sensitive topic. That's where I'm going. Exactly. Yeah. And then, and then became transfixed by it and kept uh, uh, sort of poking at it. The, the, the thing that I took out of it and, and, you know, this is a, a thing that Kevin and I uh, uh, tend to do in, in our, in our text conversations is overanalyze ev- everything, but like big time, the, the large point that I got out of the special was that Chappelle has this I, I, I'm going to say parasitic, but I don't mean that uh, uh, relationship with his audience, which is that you don't get this big in America doing anything unless mm. you have the favor of a white audience. And yet Dave Chappelle's entire career on some level, and he admits it even in this special, is that his problem is always with white people, uh, has <laughs> been making fun of white people and and making fun of uh, uh, elements of blasé privilege. I mean, to this day, his special, which is really the one that really put him on the map, Killing Them Softly, has <laughs> the greatest explanation without ever saying white privilege about white privilege, which is his, his bit about Chip. Yeah. yeah. Where he's you know driving sorry. drunk and he's speeding through New York, gets that. pulled over and and uh, you know, just tells the officer, I'm sorry, <laughs> officer, I didn't know I couldn't do that. <laughs> And that's it. And he lets him go. Like the, the difference between how he thought of it and how Chip thought of it. That's it. That's all. If you've ever wanted to know, you don't need to go to diversity training. You don't need to, you don't need to read, uh, 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 you know, an, a book about anti-racism. You want to understand white privilege. Just watch the Chappelle chip bit. And, and there you go. That, that is, that is, that is in, in a way that, uh, you know, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. And yet, I think the reason why I would describe the back part of that special as as both disappointed and pleading is that he can't square the circle on why the LGBT community, I would say trans the transgender community specifically, and like you said, the activist class, why they aren't like that. Why why they can't say like, oh no, Chappelle's making fun of me. Let me laugh along with it in the way that white people have, in the way that Jews have, in the way that other black people have. Like, like that is, you know, in his mind, he's like, this is my role in life. My role in life is to point out the odd inconsistencies in our our social fabric. And uh, I can only do it based on what I see. I can only do it based on my worldview. Uh, he's been very upfront throughout the Netflix specials of kind of trying to defang the fact that he is rich and famous and lives on a farm and doesn't exactly have the, the, the every man's point of view, like he might have uh, uh, back in the day. He is very much, you know, Bruce Springsteen now, as opposed to, you know, the, the first couple albums, but he, he, by the end of it, it, it seems like he went really hard with like, he has like a very brutal Jew joke. He has a very brutal uh, black joke, like up top. And and the white jokes are kind of, you know, akin to him breathing. But like, <laughs> I think that part of it is that like he wanted to set up that expectation of like, look, this is what I do. This is this is what my function is. And yet he 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 it, it doesn't work. And, and it's almost been. Louder than louder than ever, uh, uh, because I think he he showed his belly a little bit. Yeah, and, and I think it's it's the same fight as usual. That's I couldn't have said it better than you just did. Uh, he's he's 
fighting power and uh, corrupt power, bad, or what he perceives as bad power or yeah. uh, socially violent power. And uh, he had, I think what we've also seen throughout, throughout these specials is the realization that like uh, this is bigger than like um, whiteness. And I, um, and there are plenty of problems with that. And he, he does great to expose those problems. But I think he still does see it as a fight against the concept of whiteness. Um, but he just sees it as more nuanced now. And um, I, the thing that's so impressive to me is, and the thing that's so enjoyable, and I wish everybody could, could enjoy this about it, uh, either enjoy it or just turn off the special, don't watch the special, don't freak out about it, is like his capacity for narrative. I mean, he's like telling us this story, like, um, and for some reason, this this is like a problem that's emerging more often. Is this aversion to narrative, or these like limitations on narrative, and and what like, and storytelling, like you know, this idea that stories have to be told this way. You can't say this in stories. You can't say that. You're you're not allowed to take it in this direction. You're not allowed to use these characters. You're not allowed to to apply these themes, yeah. and I think I think that's that's problematic, and that's what he's getting at. And I I do you're you're totally right. I think there's an element that I hadn't seen in in Chappelle really before, which is like a little bit of like of a dazed look that you see in a boxer in the later rounds when they're like, I was supposed to win this very easily. Yeah. And it's just not happening. Um, but that's, I mean, that's not why we, we watch Chappelle. I mean, he's not a comedian. I mean, it, like he's a, a philosopher, a philosopher, comedian. And, and he, I just admire what he does so much more than like the journalist comedians, like yeah. in this, uh, like uh, John Oliver is who I'm thinking of. Sure. Yeah. Who, who's, who is trying to break down, a modern thing and you're looking at it in a very of the moment context where Chappelle is looking at this on this, this kind of larger a hundred feet up kind of thing. Let, let me, let me ask you about this uh, politically. And this is just great that now we're going from uh, 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 refereeing the uh, uh, issues between the black comedian and the trans community as two white guys <laughs> to now fully just policing inside the black community. But as somebody who I know has the music taste that 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 you have, which uh, are similar to mine, and Dave Chappelle has made no secret that music is a gigantic part of his aesthetic. You know, both uh, he's got a new documentary coming out uh, where he's got a lot of the same folks that he did his first documentary uh, uh, about. But if you look at the music that he has surrounded himself with, and this was you know very very popular in the late '90s and, and early 2000s, but most deaf, Talib Kweli. Outcast, uh, Kanye West, th Common. These mm. are all artists that when you listen to that music, and this was thought to be radical liberal thought at the time, but they are littered with themes of maybe you shouldn't be having sex so much, ladies. Have more <laughs> respect for yourself. Maybe you shouldn't be aborting your baby. This is like pro-life themes that are in this music that now, if you just look at like, okay, what are they, they, they rapping about now it's about black liberation. It's about all these things that racially very much track one-to-one -one with what we think of as a liberal thought now, but socially these things are, are now kind of thought to be anathema on the left is part of this that Chappelle finds himself out of uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, ten years on, he wakes up like the unfrozen caveman lawyer, and he's like, "Wow, like I'm I'm not where I used to be on the political spectrum." Yeah, I no, I think that's spot on, and it's uh, it happens. The point he's at in the political spectrum happens to be, uh, as Norm Macdonald said, box office poison. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's not good. I mean, like the farther right you go when you're in any any part of the entertainment industry, it's just like you're just uh, alienating yourself more, which I think is ridiculous. 
And I mean, that's like, I've, I've tried to do everything I can to lead a charge against that idea. Um, but it's, I would also say that like conservatives need to handle things. They need to calm down a little bit about that. And, you know, I think they're welcoming. They're a little overeager, but they're also like uh, very selective. Like they didn't, there weren't any like conservative headlines about Chappelle's uh, post George Floyd special, you know, they, yeah. they, they didn't really yeah. talk about that. I mean, they, they're kind of uh, guilty of the same stuff, but I, uh, back to your question, I, I don't think that's, uh, I think it's a positive thing in general. I think it's a, a reflection of this, uh, of the dialectic of our times. Like, I think in general, most of us are like pretty much in the middle, in the middle. And there is this like useful and, you know, mostly uh, understandable movement to the left and that um, the sort of like uh, alienating force of it is um, driving a lot of people away. And that's uh, it's been interesting to see that emerge in the hip hop community specifically, uh, which has always been politically charged. But yeah. Um, it's also hip hop as a genre is uh, I would say like middle-aged or even older. Like it's not a young revolutionary anymore. Like it's kind of settled into itself and it's, I mean, we're not to like the cover band phase yet, which is what I consider old age for any sort of musical form. Uh, but like we're approaching it and I really like where it's at. I think it's a, a, a positive thing. And um, yeah, but modern modern hip hop for whatever you you know musically might want to say about it, and let's let's understand it as you know a a what is kind of at times derisively referred to as like the SoundCloud era or or mm -hmm. the you know and it's that's basically just a, a leaner beats trap beats uh, uh, with you know, more vocal enhancement to the point where you might not even be able to understand what's being said because it's kind of more about the vibe than it is about the lyrics, which is very different than what we kind of saw 10 years ago where like the kings of the industry were like the verbal acrobats. But mm -hmm. like uh, it, it very much is detached. It's very inward uh, 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 focused uh, hip hop right now. It's like the 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 big uh, it, it's sonically sort of changing, but also it's not necessarily about uh, you know, for every uh, uh, YG's F Donald Trump. There's a million different songs about kind of how sad I am and and whether or not, you know, I'm, I'm going to kill myself. It's a very sad era. It's a blue period for hip hop. Yes. And um, I think and that's a representation of of our times, I think, but like, I think Gen Z, I think Gen Z in general is, is doing really well. I think they're, they get a lot of, uh, hate that I don't think is warranted. Uh, but I think their, their, uh, role in hip hop has been very productive. And, um, because there's that, and there's also like, I mean, you're, we're seeing like rappers wearing dresses and stuff now, which yeah. like, I saw a meme that had like, you know, Easy on one side pointing a gun at the camera and it said hip hop then and then hip hop now with like rappers wearing dresses. I think that's a positive improvement <laughs> like, uh, because you have nonconformity in both of them, but one of them is violent and the other is uh, socially productive or at least, I mean, that's like challenging, maybe not even challenging the status quo because I don't think that's a very edgy thing. Like if Easy E were wearing a dress and pointing a gun, that would be completely different. Well, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, look, hip hop, I think long ago took the mantle of rock and roll for the art that scares your parents. And, <laughs> you know, when, when, when your parents grew up on NWA, that's not going to scare them. Uh, well uh what's going to scare them is you wearing a dress and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, uh, challenging traditional forms of masculinity and all that. So I think like that, that is, that is, uh, 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 to be expected. Uh, all right. Any, any, any final thoughts here on, on, uh, uh, uh Chappelle or, or, uh, or, or anything else. And, and we can, I, I have a few more topics here, but, uh, 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 is, is there any, 
any any bow we want to put on this is has has the discourse kind of moved any because of this because I kind of felt like this was just sort of a retread of every other Chappelle freak out and and now I think the only real curiosity I have uh, is what that next deal looks like for Chappelle and whether or not the company that gives it to him gets heat for it. I, the only thing I would add is that I'm I'm really happy with Netflix for I mean for not buckling to um, the the demands whatever whatever you want to call it uh, like the protest the protest yeah the protest uh, I mean the the reason they didn't is probably related to the amount of money that they spent on the project but that that doesn't storm, that doesn't seem to be a, a problem within like different corporate environments. So I was happy to see that. I think like, you know, even if, you know, Chappelle, I mean, I just hope he keeps doing what he's going to do. And I think that they're like, his his authenticity is so irremovable from who he is as a person that, you know, he's, he, he won't change. So that I'm happy for that. I think that's a good thing. I mean, look, uh, I, I, I would have been shocked if Ted Sarandos, the CEO of Netflix, had done anything but defend Chappelle. I mean, this is a guy who took the the Viacom license that he paid for to Chappelle's show, took Chappelle's show down as part of Dave Chappelle's negotiating tactic to go to Viacom and say, hey, by the way, I should be getting a cut of this, despite the fact that he contractually had no... Uh, uh, no right to it. He was like, look, I will leverage my relationship with Netflix and I will publicly tell my fans to protest this entity unless I am getting a cut. And then Viacom caved. So it's like, I, I think if, if if that's the case, Chappelle swings a, a, a pretty big stick in terms of what he means in, in the streaming world, where this, where the Chappelle special is, even if the point of it is for you to watch it so you can get angry about it. <laughs> matters in a way that in our culture, not a lot matters. Like things come and go as much as everybody's talking about squid game right now, by Christmas, no one's going to remember what it is. Cause we're going to be obsessed with some other thing. Man, you got to drop that mic. That was a good, <laughs> that was a good uh, closer. Uh, there. All right. Uh, uh, let's, let's uh, real quick, take a, a, a break and then we'll be back. Cause I want to talk about Twitter. Okay, guys, real quick uh, break here so I can remind you that this show is brought to you by everybody that supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com is uh, where you need to go. Uh, Bonus podcasts. Look, a lot of other podcasts have them. Bonus paywall content, premium subscription, blah, 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 blah. And sometimes they're just kind of other versions of the things that you already get. And that's good. That is something that should be able to uh, uh, move your move you to support a show that you really like. However, I would like to detail for you what you get when you're at the $3 level at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You get the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition. That is the reset of what the issues are of the political world on those Sunday shows. The political world takes them seriously. You should too, and I do it for you, on the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition of the uh, bonus PX3. It's the first thing you listen to on Monday morning. It really gets your mind right. Then, the late-breaking edition is our Thursday show because I record these Friday shows earlier in the week. So I often can't go in depth, at least. Sometimes we tag a little something on on, on the beginning or end. Uh, But I can't go in depth on a lot of these issues like I can on the Thursday show because it's the latest show that we record. So why don't you treat yourself? Why don't you head on over there right now? Treat yourself and become a member of the Take Politics Seriously Society. $3 level gets you two bonus podcasts. Join today. 
So I was asking, I was on my live stream and I was asking folks uh, what like cosmic questions that I wanted to ask with you, because I always, it, it's, it's very, you know, talking about a news of the day thing is, is kind of whatever with you, but, but, <laughs> but it's always, it's better when we get into the, into the ether. So Twitter, it is used by a vanishingly small amount of the population, even compared to other social media outlets. And let's define the heavyweights of that genre as Facebook and YouTube. And yet, the vanishingly small amount of the population that uses it appears to be 100% of the media and politicians for whom politicians genuinely sort of see the world only through political media, or at least disproportionately through political media. Do you think that we have now, several years on from this being the kind of norm has this kind of warped where we are at in terms of our like the average American's relationship with the politicians that lead them? Oh, to- definitely. Yeah, it's. I mean, the the collapse of media has been taking place for a while, and I think this is like just uh, this is sort of like the weird, uh, sort of uh, embarrassing. Uh, death spasms of of legacy media, and and I think part of the problem is those. those right, uh, uh, real quick, because I, I want I want people to to kind of I think we're, we're we can very easily slip into some jargony shorthand that people won't know what the hell we're talking about. So when we say legacy media, what do you mean? So that that would be like the institution of journalism as part of as a, a stable part of democracy itself. So sort of like the fourth pillar of democracy, which is based on libertarian values of free press, free speech, um, and sort of the implication that there is uh, a a duty to uh, expose power. And, you know, there's always been an underdog status within journalism that, uh, oh, there's, there's a great writer who talks about it. I'll, I'll, I'll tweet the, the name later of the book yeah. once I remember. Um, who talks about how like that underdog stat, uh, status vanished after Watergate. Like Watergate was a high water mark. After that, like uh, journalists have increasingly uh, not become, they've lost their underdog status and they've become part of the status quo and they've fused with politicians. So okay. it's interesting that you, you would put the two of those together on Twitter, which is, is the situation. Uh, what I find interesting is that they have like intertwined that like the journalists uh, in that, in that stratum have a problem removing themselves from the political mechanisms at place. Like, I mean, Pelosi said it the other day, like you know, rebuking journalists for not doing a better job of selling policy and yeah. there, there wasn't, I mean, there wasn't a response. Like there sh- they should have said, no, that is not our job. Yeah. For folks who might not have uh, seen this, uh, Pelosi at her weekly address, uh, when asked a question about whether or not uh, uh, people who are Americans have not responded to the, the build back better bill, which is massive. It is a gigantic <laughs> bill. Uh, the response from Pelosi was, well, the problem is with the media talking about this top line number all the time and not talking about what's in the bill. The problem being that nobody knows what's in the bill. And if she would talk about what's in the bill, if the Democrats would actually, I don't know, debate these things in public, which is normally what the the government is supposed to happen is that you debate these things through the committees. They all kind of flow up and then either you pass separate bills or if you're going to do an omnibus, all this negotiation happens out in public. Instead it's happened in private. So all we have are leaks of, of what people want to believe but but yeah, you're right. There, there there is a moment where she says like, "Well, the problem is you guys aren't talking enough about what's in the bill," and and the media, uh, you know, for, which was for, clever. It was clever of her to say that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a study out a couple of years ago uh, that that talked about the usefulness of uh, it was um, of 
the, the study itself claimed to prove that there's no gatekeeping bias in journalism. That there is bias, but like that yeah. the stories that they choose are not uh, don't have bias. And buried in this study was a little passage about like the the their uh, sampling methods and and what they did to get the opinions of different journalists. Whereas like in most media studies up until then, media um, they had gone, they judged journalist politics based on uh, surveys from the journalists. And what they did with this one is they went to the, they went to Twitter and assessed the journalists politics there. Tweets. Yeah. Yes. So what, what happened with this study was you have this legacy of journalists as like avowed independents because that's what they're supposed to be. And then this like, huge jump to the left uh, which is like you know i don't think i don't think journalists have always occupied this space on the left i just i remember like a couple of years ago going to a journalism conference with like there were three or four pulitzer prize winners and um from the new york times and they said the point of journalism has become activism yeah that's a split. That's a split on the left in general. I do think in general, most journalists have been left not on the left side, mostly because just look where the farm system is. Like there's not really a like Liberty (laughs) university to New York times pipeline. Like this is, they by and large come from uh, a Northeastern, uh, if not, you know, uh, 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 North the northeastern region and northwestern university uh oh, yeah. like uh I was one of I was in one of the the mills I know who the kids were that that came in there and take nothing away from their ability to do the job take nothing away from their ability to be professionals but by and large they came from liberal democrat households in a liberal democrat area of the country like that's that's just the 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 people that that kind of come in there. Uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's funny that you mentioned the gatekeeping bias because I think that that in general has has been a a larger problem. Oh, I agree. I think it exists completely. I think this the study was terrible to reach that conclusion that it doesn't yeah. exist. Uh, man, it, it's uh, it's funny too. I think a lot of it is it's like very tied up in like in academic persuasions. So like, um, and I tell this to like, um, I make this point about conservative media and and I try to tell conservatives, this is like, you have to um, indulge like the more creative aspects. So like what you wind up with is in conservative media is very poorly written, very boring, uh, like, very clearly ideological stories that just aren't any fun to read. And then like on the other side, you, you had like a, you know, a 3000 um, word article that is the dumbest thing that you've yeah. ever read, but it's so beautifully written. It's so fun to read. It's, uh, it's very fascinating. Like the, the, uh, the methods they're doing, the style they're using is, is incredible. But so it's like, I, like I feel this pressure to kind of try and mediate between those two extremes. Oh, to, to try to bring a style, to bring a flair into issues that would traditionally not be assigned by an editor who would find that idea to be either not worthwhile or outright dangerous because it does not agree with the politics. Yes. And to also encourage like uh, the, the more kind of left, left leaning outlets to, uh, just maybe like, you know, hire some conservatives or so, you know, some, some centrists and like, let them read it before you, you know, like publish a story that it's like, why it's important that we know that Jesus was black. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> like maybe, you know, maybe that's a paragraph in your story. Maybe that's not 5,000 words. Yeah. You know, uh, I forget who it was on Twitter that posted this thing uh, as like, pointing out this New York Times uh, headline convention of like, uh, uh, and, and I don't know all the examples offhand, but let me just use uh, a, a, a general example that makes fun of it. Like, I'm a firefighter. 
yes, forest fires are great for the environment or something like that. It's just like, I'm a thing. The thing that you would believe that I am for, I am actually against and you should understand. And so it's, it's this way of using identitarian politics to say, like, oh, this issue is totally now neutered. Like, I'm a Repu- like one of them was, I'm a Republican. Yes, you should vote for a Democrat in 2022 or something like that. So it's like it's 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 that level of like here, like yeah, even these guys are saying that our opinions are correct, kind of kind of conventions where I I I don't know. I I I just when when we talk about the the destruction of legacy media, what I think. A, number one, it's all I've ever wanted in my life. When I was coming up in journalism, all I did is look at the big dogs. And I all you I did, did uh, all I did as as a peasant is look up to the castle and wait for the mm. day the king died. That was all I ever wanted. Now he's dead and, and the warlords are running the countryside. And I'm like, well, oh, well, I guess there was something to stability of there just like being a North Star that we could all complain about. But like uh uh now it is it's total chaos like mm-hmm. like there there is i was having a conversation after i uh, we did our interview on the last episode of px3 with molly wood who works at marketplace tech and one of the things that we were talking about is that now the staggering amount of journalism that is literally just copy paste mm-hmm. that a thing happens so d- go to Google News right now. I don't know whatever the news of the day is because this is airing two days after we recorded. But mm-hmm. go go to Google News and then just type in whatever the story of the day is and then look at those results and d- differentiate for me, even in the top tier, the Post, the Times, everybody, people with newsrooms, right? Uh, how much original reporting is done on all those different versions of that story? And what I think you'll find is zero. One person breaks a thing and it doesn't matter if it's good. It doesn't matter if it's an unsourced story like, like that, that doesn't show its work. Everybody else will report it. And now it's the biggest story on the planet. And it's like that that was anathema to how I came up where it's like, no, you were it was a shame for you oh, if yeah. you didn't break a story that you had the capacity to break and you couldn't run something else unless you got your own element on it. Like it was not worthwhile for you to just summarize somebody else's work. There's no, cause there's no excuse for it anymore. I mean, like, you know, uh, in the early days of uh, the Associated Press, you saw a, an early version of that because it was like, look, this is the wire. This is what happened. This is all the information we have. But now if like, it just takes a little bit of work you can probe around. You don't even need to be in the situation, observing the situation in order to come up with a, original ideas about it. But you're right. I mean, it's just like uh, this sort of manufactured, lazy content um, that, yeah, I, it, that is problematic. That's like, it's I, not I think, helping. I think it's, I think it's because, you know, this is what happens when you, uh, when, when advertising falls apart, <laughs> you know, before <laughs> it's like these contracts, the ad contracts that were being signed for newspapers was, uh, you know, all right. So you're going to buy for six years, a month, like you're going to go for one issue, blah, blah, blah. But like they were, they were fairly stable. Whereas now if it's all click, if it's all click based, it's all dynamic ad generated, then the only thing that matters is that you click on that link, which means that every outlet's worth is if we're talking about, I don't know, uh, 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 Brie Larson today, then everybody's got to have a Brie Larson headline. Like no matter what, even if it's just a total summation of like uh, uh, what somebody else did or, or the laziest, like people on Twitter are saying blah, blah, blah. Like, Whatever it is, you just need the headline because you need the clicks, because you need the page views, because you need the conversion rate on those ads. I, I feel like most people not only realize that, but they don't like it. Well, I mean, 
uh, but all right. So how do we sort through that and the fact that everybody hates the media anyway? <laughs> like, like yeah. just because now that is the reason why we hate the media. It's not. That, it's not like we didn't hate the media before. Yeah. No. It, it's and my whole my argument about that is that like it's the media's fault. Like they and they're they're like engaged in this like this victim blaming. And there, there's like a total lack of responsibility within the media, for like the like the their popular idea of like, oh, the reason why uh, for fake news is there's a lack of media literacy. But oh, so you like people can't read. Yeah, like, <laughs> that's offensive. Well, that I mean, uh, the, the, and, and I don't want to make light of it, but there was that story uh, about uh, what was it? Gabby Patino. The the uh, the lady who was found dead. She was a van life vlogger with her fiance. The fiance was suspected to have murdered her, and so there was this like hunt manhunt for him. And there was a discourse, largely online, largely on Twitter, where all the reporters hang out about how the fact that she was being covered so much was white woman syndrome. If she were not a pretty young blonde white woman she would not get the kind of attention that she gets. Now, while there's an element of that, that is totally true. And I would encourage everybody to look up the uh, late, great Patrice O'Neill's bit on uh, the value of a white woman's life uh, comparative to everybody else. Um, I think it was very funny to watch journalists join into this chorus about how nobody covers black deaths, black murders, indigenous murders, Asian murders in the same kind of way. When Spot you're on. the people that are supposed to be doing it, like it's no. the, you can't just join into the protest and be like, Oh no, but this is your job. It is your job to do it. So why don't you either explain uncomfortably why you don't or pledge to do otherwise? Or what I think was probably most accurate in that case is understand that the Gabby Patino thing was fascinating for a lot of levels. She was doing a very of the moment job, a van life vlogger, an influencer. That that meant that there was a gigantic trail of video and pictures and Instagram stuff of her and her supposed murderer together, which feeds into our true crime instinct because you two could crack the case. And I'm sure there was Reddit you know, uh, uh, threads dedicated to figuring out exactly where they might be based on all these clues and searching for other elements that they might put together. And it was open-ended. People were hunting for the guy. So it was a, a now kind of news value. Also, she was a pretty young white lady, which never hurts. <laughs> it doesn't hurt in terms of, in terms of our, our, our culture, but it's not the entire story. And I think it, it, yeah. it just that was that was a great snake eating its own tail moment for me. Man, I wish I could hug you right now. That was like a great mic drop moment. Another great mic drop moment. Because <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're, like there is uh, and because, yes, the story matches all the criteria or so many of the criteria for newsworthiness. Yes. And, and like racializing the story using a uh, a theory that's like really hasn't um been relative for a while i mean like you could say that you could talk about like the lack of misrepresentation in media reporting and media stories and the lack of representation in newsrooms you could talk about that in you know 30 years ago it's just not the case anymore like it's like um there is like a much needed uh balance of representation and um and if you look at the 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 like the correlation between the the stories that are being reported on and you know what people find important in, with regard to like public opinion and the like overall however as much as you can measure it like how important it is in you know everyday life there there is a, is a disharmony that moves in their favor but you're yeah. right it, it is also like a crisis of personal responsibility it's like either don't say anything, don't complain or write the story yourself. All right. One last thing that I wanted to get your opinion on, because I know you've been thinking about it. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, my, uh, uh Reddit, uh, uh, activity has, uh, uh, algorithmically put me in the demo 
for some of these subreddits, but you've been fascinated recently by the anti-work yeah. uh, movement. And and yeah. how, how would how would you explain it to people that are not online and 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 would have no idea what this is? Yeah, so, so I'll start by framing this in relation to um, most of what we've talked about already. And that's like, I had an idea for an editorial that like looks at the anti-work movement uh, from a positive perspective. Uh, and the, the anti-work movement is like based on um, Marx's sort of utopian uh, idea of the role of work in life. And uh, it has become, I mean, it has become like a big thing in Marxist theory, post-Marxist theory, and then critical theory, where there is, uh, and the most recent embodiment of it is, is I find very, I find it very poetic, and it's, I find it great, is this idea that, um, you know, rest is the true state, uh, is the tr true state of our nature, and that there's like, uh, that rest is sacred, and that we deserve what's sacred. And work is a disruption of what's sacred. And so you have texts like uh, Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism, and this, this idea that, like, why is it easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism? Um, and I just, I think it's fascinating. I, I don't, um, I mean, I, I think work provides us with a lot of meaning. Uh, I think it's, a, I think it's generally a good thing, but, like, less of it would be good. Uh, if we can do that sustainably, like, uh, and I think it's easy, like, it's easy for a guy who like reads books all day and writes about it to say like, yeah, work is good. Yeah, um, exactly. Like, no, uh, uh, either, either of us, uh, soft-handed dilettantes are necessarily uh, bearing the, the actual uh, brunt of, of, of the physical labor that is required to move the world every day. Uh, spot on. Hold on. Um, I don't know uh, if we are like the the problem I have with the, the anti work or the no work movement is that like it's a little bit short on uh, realizable solutions. Like, so, yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's the thing that I have found. And this is only in being algorithmically fed various posts from the Reddit forums. Uh, r slash anti-work and r slash lost generation, which are in general, uh, you know, kind of simpatico in their, in their minds, all those focus on, on slightly different things, uh, in terms of where their targets are, but all of it kind of boils down to the idea that we are living in a late capitalist hellscape and, uh, that the only true way that you can fight for your own dignity is to, reject these capitalist principles and to try to subvert them at every opportunity you get lost generation is a little bit more morose in the idea that I don't know exactly how they define the lost generation of, of, of or whether or not it's picked up and, and maybe other people can do it, but it is, it is the idea that, uh, okay, there are people who are living, you know, later into life and not having kids and not owning a house because they feel insufficient to it and uh, financially to it. And I do think that there's something there. There is, there is something mm -hmm. to, to the concept that people feel like, wow, I'm living a drastically different life than my parents did. Uh, but I don't know whether or not that's a, a thing where it's like, okay, well, our, maybe it's just because our generation is more cognizant of the fact that, our grandparents were alive until their Hades, you know, and, and, and maybe, uh, for, for our parents, that was not the case. You know, people were, were dying closer to their sixties and seventies, uh, that, that maybe that, that accounts for, for, for a 10 year window. But, but I don't know. I, I think that, that, uh, obviously there is certainly a, a general movement specifically in the online community to say like, Hey, this is, uh, I feel something genuinely wrong here. Yeah, it's um, I file I file it under the category of like yeah things have been bad before but uh, not for us um, yeah and there's there's an interesting uh, you know I mentioned Mark Fisher the guy who taught Mark Fisher is this uh, this guy this critical theorist this philosopher named Nick Land and he's a very controversial he's the only like right wing critical theorist and I do I don't endorse 
there, he's controversial. So, but I would only point out that like one of his stances is like that he's very much like pro capitalist, and he, he, like some of his lines about like the anti capitalist movement are brutal. Like he just talks about like yeah, you know, the, the left just uh, uses the word capitalism to describe everything that hurts their feelings. Like, yeah. and you know, and I've read like really beautiful, beautifully written passages arguing that like uh, time itself is evil because it's a capitalist construct, and yep. you know, yeah, like uh, so it's I don't know, I, I don't know where I land on it, but I think it's important to to like, I mean, is this a situation where like uh, 150 years ago, 200 years ago? People are like, no, that's ridiculous. Child, who needs child labor laws? Like, yeah. Yeah. Are, I think we will get to a position where uh, you know automation will make it so and so that we can pursue a, a life of leisure. But um, and I think the antagonism of like the anti-work movement is good in that sense. And I think that like Generation Z have very legitimate grievances. Uh, I think that they have every right to be, you know, anti-work and I, and that I file it under the whole, like, uh, you know, it's a movement of nonconformity. Um, but it's also, I would say like, Hey, you know, just wait it out. Uh, that's what I would yeah. say to them. <laughs> like, it, well, it doesn't get better. Then, it's, I think, I think the, the natural argument against it is you are living in the most prosperous society the world has ever known. If, ever. if you think, if you think that mm -hmm. this is bad, then, Oh my God, uh, uh, wind back the clock. But then again, the other side of that is in our rapidly progressing Western society, which obviously we are, are centric in. I am not quite as well versed on, on other kind of movements, but mm -hmm. like the, the one thing that is the constant is, we advance fast and that means that we regard the last generation on varying levels as brutal and backward. Like yeah. that, that is the, the cost, the cost of advancement, the cost of uh, uh, becoming more successful, the cost of living longer, the cost of, of, of all the, the, the benefits, the fruits that we get from this society is looking backwards and saying, my God, what cruel idiots we were. Yeah, um, Fukuyama, Francis Fukuyama talks about this in uh, our, our post-human future. And he talks about like how this is really a crisis of like a departure from um, the human condition and the importance, the societal importance of the human condition. And I, I think he's right in, in the sense that like we have departed from something that's very important on a human level. Uh, and we, we need to like, we need to return to that. We, like people, and M Marx was like kind of instrumental in this on the left, at least of this like idea that, oh yeah, uh, history begins in 1846 with the publishing of the communist manifesto. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, you need to like, you need to read uh, religious texts. You need to read Aristotle. You need to read Eastern philosophy. Like it's, uh, I mean, if you're going to engage with, these like uh, with contemplation and with these pursuits, like you need to do your best in the time you have on earth to, um, to really understand what history was before you make these statements. Uh, I don't know. I might, I might go back on that opinion, but that's how I feel. <laughs> uh, I mean, if, if, if we subscribe like I do to the idea that humanity is patterns humans are pattern recognizing creatures mm. the the consensus we tend to reach not politically but in terms of community tend to be based on the patterns that we can all agree exist then i don't think drawing a line in the sand arbitrarily and saying everything that happened before mm -hmm. is non-existent and everything that happens after matters all that does is just put more of a burden on you to start capturing the patterns uh from from a later point of view as opposed to trying to understand what they are uh as as the fruits of other patterns that have evolved throughout time i like that um so what's the pattern of our time 
I mean, the pattern of our time, it's, it's funny because amongst all of this and, and, you know, with all that Twitter conversation, which is a very discontent place, which is, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, very much at the forefront. If, if all the media is there and the media is looking at its lens through Twitter, then you can understand why we get the kind of reactions to uh, uh, the bad things in life, the unjust things in life, the cruel things in life, the horrible things in life in the way that we do. But when you look at, I think, uh, I forget which, which study this was about contentment, the mm. vast majority of America is very content. Yeah. The, the vast majority of America is actually pretty happy. Uh, they're not on Twitter <laughs> by the numbers. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and it's a boring tweet to say, Hey everybody, I'm, I'm, I'm happy today. I hope everybody's having a happy time. Uh, because only someone's going to remind you that somebody is not indeed somebody might be, uh, uh, you know, uh, might, might be having the worst time on earth, largely because you are having a happy time. But, uh, <laughs> I, I think that we might be in an age of contentment, Yeah, whether or not we know it is another thing. But again, maybe that's the pattern. The pattern is we, we now have the worrying class. We now have a, a section of society for which it is our job to professionally worry. And maybe we're necessary. Maybe the professional worriers are necessary because a too content society gets uh, uh, fat and, 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 and a too content society allows rot, uh, uh, you know, uh, under it. You need that self-loathing complex that. America uh, has, you know, is, is our, is our favorite thing is to talk about how great we are and to talk about how much we suck. Yeah. I, I my uh, take is that uh, America is based on youth culture and youth. And that's, that's our animating spirit. And I think there is a, like a discontent that comes with youth and like it, even when things are good, you're like, you got to stomp your feet a little bit. Yeah. And, I think also ultimately my dad's an thing. asshole. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yes, we live in a mansion, but my dad's an asshole. Spot there. Yes. That is uh that's a pretty good uh, image of what we're living through right now. And I, I like, I think it's a good thing. I think it's, I think it's, all I mean, a it's good certainly, thing. it's certainly a natural thing, right? Yeah. Like, For I mean, sure. we, we don't, we don't have a ton of stories about uh, the, the, the family on high that lives a perfect life, right? We, we tend to tell our stories about the family on high that has tremendous problems, which uh, I'm very excited uh, that Succession's coming back this this Sunday because that's among my favorite contemporary version of that. Oh man, I need to, yeah, I need to dive into that. Um, oh, you got to, you got to. I've been trying to get Heaton into watching it because he actually worked at it in, inside the News Corp empire and uh i i he's he has been he's actually been uh, uh reticent to do it for fear that it would give him ptsd but like uh, uh i think you should you should you should you should you should get into it it is it is truly 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 great work it's yeah you've never led me astray with recommendations man god bless heaton i love that man oh he's, i know we uh last a couple weeks ago before he went down to austin we ate this like 20 inch pizza uh, together. <laughs> we ate the whole thing and just, just talked about the state of the world. And it was such an enjoyable, edifying uh, experience. He's that man. You and him are just like two of my favorite people on earth. Well, we're all going to have to get together because you never actually hung out the three of us. So that's going to have to happen sooner rather than later. Uh, but unfortunately this episode has come to an end. Kevin, where can people find you and your work? Uh, on Twitter. Uh, there you go. <laughs> uh, uh, the underscore Kevin underscore Ryan. Uh, and uh, there's in the next six months or so, there's some, some big stuff coming out. So I'll keep everybody updated about that. Keep an eye on that. Uh, thank you so much, man. Dude, always a pleasure. And that is it for today. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Head on over to px3guest.com if you would like to say uh, something nice to Kevin Ryan. If you want to email me, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3tweets. You can find our live streams at px3live.com. 
Podcast.com. And you can share the podcast with your friends, family, neighbors, synagogue, church, uh, union hall, whatever you want. Uh, just give them the URL, px3podcast.com. Find all of our merch at politicsmerch.com. You want to give us a one-time donation so easy on the platform of your choice, paypal.me slash payjury, P-A-Y-J-U-R-Y. Venmo is justin-young-20. Cash app is px3cash, and you can send me anything you would like in the physical mail. P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, the only way to get bonus content is to be a part of our Patreon at Take Politics Seriously. Dot com $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Idris Aslanian, DJ Katie Mack, Neemeister, Dr. G, Lord Scale, De Quince, Anile, Admiral Flapjack, Utah Jimmy Montana, Edmund, Pluribus Unum, Pete Spicery, 70s TV salesman or spy. D, really? And vote Gloria Young for king of the New World Order. Zombie Doc, Edison, no mention on the podcast, please. Dotcom Junkie, DP4 Bongo, Pop Gold, Jewish Lives Matter, 100 Mile Runner, Double K Ranch, Ye Old Pinball Shop, John, Snuffies, Off Route 44, Neil, Charles, Darren, Olin and Angela, DL, Stephen, Chad, Miranda, Janelle, Sheaf, Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, D Laser, just another pilot, middle aged Mike, The Jen, Will, J Pink, and Andrew. One more time, you want to join their ranks, head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com and join at the $10 level. That's it for the week. Uh, a little peek into next week. Uh, we have already recorded a great interview with Mark Caputo of Politico. He is going to talk about the curious case of Georgia. That is where Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, one of Trump's biggest enemies, is deciding to buck the trend. Instead of pretending that Trump doesn't exist, he's running directly against him. How will it work out? A man deciding to charge against the most popular figure in his own party, probably poorly. But there's a lot to to process there, including some uh, some breaking down of the chances of Brian Camp. And of course, because Caputo largely covers Florida, we got to swing southward to the Sunshine State. Till next time, however, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio. Politics. Politics. Politics.